Welcome to the Vertical Go-To-Market Podcast, where you'll discover new opportunities to grow your business from seven figures to eight from the world's most successful agency and B2B SaaS executives. I'm your host, Corey Quinn. Let's jump into the show. Today, I'm joined by Jonathan Stark. Welcome, Jonathan. Hey, good to see you. Nice to be here. Super excited about our conversation today. Would you mind introducing yourself to those folks who may not be familiar with you and your background? Sure. My name is Jonathan Stark. I'm from lovely Providence, Rhode Island, and I am a former software developer who is now on a mission to rid the world of hourly billing. Beautiful. Uh, yeah. I could go on and on, but that's the <laughs> that's the thumbnail. So you and I know each other. We uh, I'm in your community, Ditcherville, I think is the yep. official name. Yes. Welcome to Ditcherville. Yes. <laughs> and I'm a student of yours. I've learned a lot from you over the years. And I'm really excited to bring you on the show because I think you have a wealth of experience and knowledge in areas that a lot of the listening audience are, are really potentially interested in and can definitely benefit from. And one of those areas is this sort of domain of positioning, which is a topic that I'm personally very passionate about. One of the things that you do is you primarily work with soloists today. Is that fair? But yes, primarily. Okay. And, and what is a soloist just for context? Yeah, it's someone who really is the only employee of a one-person business. So they probably have a lawyer, an accountant, or a bookkeeper, or something like that. But they probably don't have, certainly, W-2 employees, or lots of them. Generally, I work with people who, who were freelancers, or were very successful for some reason, and became more of a consultant type, and they don't really have a lot of overhead they decided not to scale by hiring, which isn't to say that the things I talk about don't apply to other types of business models, but certainly those are the kinds of folks who I mostly work with. And I think what's super interesting about this conversation we're about to have is that a lot of the principles and the concepts that you teach directly to soloists actually apply pretty directly to the similar or the same audience that is listening to the show. So kind of a crossover a little bit, and, I, and I'm, I'm super interested to hear your thoughts on on these things. So when it comes to positioning, um, and you, you, one of the things you help the soloists do is to position themselves as the sort of the go-to person in their space, what are some of the principles that you teach when it comes to that effort? Let's start here. You want to be the one and only, either, you know, if it's just you or if it's a small firm, if you're in any kind of service business, you want to be the one and only. You don't want to be just one of many. Because if you're just one of many, what that means is that your potential clients see you as basically the same or interchangeable with other shops or individuals that do the same thing. So if there's there's basically no meaningful difference between you and the next person, so you're automatically going to have a hard time raising your fees or being profitable because there's always someone who's going to undercut you. And the, the client, if they can't tell the difference between A and B, they're probably going to pick the cheaper one. So why, why wouldn't they? It'd be silly not to. So there needs to be some difference between you and the, the next hundred agencies or freelancers or consultants. So you really need to stand out from the crowd. And that's not a it's almost like an evolutionary imperative to do the opposite, to fit in, to not stand out because you don't want a saber-toothed tiger to grab you, right? But that's, <laughs> not, that's not the world we live in anymore. And so standing out is, it's, for some reason, it's very scary. And a lot of people don't want to do it. They want to kind of copy things that are air quotes proven, like, oh, proven model. Like, this is what the other, this is what IDEO is doing. Let's copy them. Mm -hmm. And then, then you're just, just going to lose. You know, I see it over and over. What are some of the characteristics of a positioning that is sort of unique and that's helpful in, in for a soloist or even an agency to be differentiated and, and to kind of be unique? Like, how, what, what does that look like in the market? Yeah. So when I first started teaching people about positioning, I was, I was sort of really thorough about it. And I, I used this kind of statement mm -hmm. called a laser-focused positioning statement that consists of it's two sentences that consists of four key points, four variables. It's like, I am a discipline who helps target market with expensive problem. And unlike my competitors, unique difference. And over the years of teaching that to people, I've found that it's incredibly hard to, to answer all of those out of the gate when you're used to being a generalist. So I've sort of made kind of 80-20 rule, made like easier ways to do it, to get started, eventually build up to that. But what can you do in the meantime to kind of like work your way up to it? 
So an easier version of it would be, you know, I do X for Y. So I do digital marketing for dentists or I do digital marketing for, or I do software development for Fortune 50 or whatever it is. It's, it's a, it's not great, but it's a start. And, and what you're doing is you're, you're continuing to be a generalist in your skills. You still, I, I do this thing. I'm a lawyer. I'm a chiropractor, whatever. I'm a tattoo artist, but you're doing it for a particular group of people you know, vertical perhaps, but it could be any, however you segment your audience, it could be billionaires. It could be, it could be some psychographic, like perfectionists, whatever it is, you do this, you do this thing that you do, you would take this skill that you have and you apply it. And for a particular type of audience for whom you can deliver certain kinds of benefits that are attractive. So that's an easier way to do it. Um, and you can think of it as I, I always describe it as like an etch-a-sketch where you have sort of two ways to specialize. You can specialize in what you do, you know, your skills. You can say, I've got all, I've got a hundred skills. I'm good at all of them. And I'm going to specialize in only doing one or two of those. So you could sort of dial the etch-a-sketch way over to the right mm-hmm. and just specialize and take a couple of your skills. And really those are the only things you talk about. I just do performance optimization for MySQL databases that have more than a billion records. It's like super specific thing a software developer could do. Yeah. On the other end, they could be like a full stack web developer. They do backend, they do front end, they uh, ops, DevOps, they do test driven development, they have a million things, right? So you're super generalist. That would be if you dial way over to the left on the horizontal. So you can specialize in your skills. You can be more general or more specialized in your skills. And then the up and down knob, uh, the vertical knob, literally the vertical knob, <laughs> would be who you help. So, yeah. what of of these things that you do? Who do you help with them? Is it businesses? Is it people? Is it companies? It's super vague, or is it something hyper specific like personal injury lawyers or you know whatever you you name the thing? Mm-hmm. Or like I said before, it could be psychographic like perfectionists or or I don't know liberals or whatever conservatives it could it could be anything um, but you can get more and more or less specialized on each one of these axes and dial yourself into a place where no one is so you can dial yourself into some white space and and become meaningfully different to those people so then you could in theory charge more premium rates you could race to the top instead of racing to the bottom with your fees I think a lot of businesses who are potentially generalists today and, and understand this concept in theory look at this and they may say, well, you know, if I specialize, then I'm going to be cutting off a ton of my opportunity. And why, why would I do something like that? How would you, how do you respond to that? Yeah. The, the metaphor that everyone uses is like, oh, I, you know, why cast, why, why just fish with one hook when I could cast a, a wide net? Yeah. And I'm like, that's not the right metaphor. You don't have a net. Starbucks has a net. Nike has a net. Apple has a net. You only have one fishing pole. That's it. So would you rather be in the ocean or would you rather be standing next to a barrel full of fish? You know, the ocean has something like 3.5 trillion fish in it, but good luck finding them in your little dinghy, right? (laughs) So if you've got a thousand trout in a barrel next to you, would you rather be fishing around in the ocean or fishing in the barrel? The fish in the barrel are going to be jumping out. Once you, because you don't need 1% or even a hundredth of a percent of 3.5 billion customers, you only probably need, you know, in your first year as a soloist, you probably can't even handle 10. So, you know, why are you fishing in this vast space when you could just pick a place where there's demand already? These fish want to be in your boat. Why not just go to them and, Mm. and serve their needs, you know, bait the hook with something that, you know, these particular kind of fish like and are going to come after. It creates more opportunity. Let's say that uh, I'm a digital marketing agency and I'm listening to this and I'm saying, okay, so on the sort of the horizontal dial, I'm going to focus in on, let's say, SEO uh, as a service, potentially. It's a way way to narrow it down. And instead of SEO for anyone, I'm going to focus on SEO for roofers as an example. What happens when there's already a couple of folks in that space already doing the same thing? What are different ways to, to kind of continue to differentiate? Yeah, it's interesting because in that the laser focus positioning statement I mentioned earlier, a lot of people can kind of do their discipline. They kind of know what they are. They, there's maybe one or two ways they'd say it, but they know what they do. The target market, they have a hard time with, but it's not impossible. 
The expensive problem they have a hard time with, but it's not impossible. But the unique difference, they're always stumped. And the reason they're always stumped is because they don't even know who their competitors are. So how could they possibly say how they're different? Mm -hmm. So if you're in a situation where there's already a, what did you say, SEO for roofers, for roofers, <laughs> then I would look at those other competitors and I would say, look, all right, how am I different? Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm a sort of iconoclastic tattoo leather type of person. Maybe it's just a personality thing. Maybe it's a business model thing. Maybe the other three of them all price in a particular way, an hourly rate or percentage of spend or something like that. And you just do it in a completely different way. I talked to someone recently who does websites for power washers <laughs> and he has a drastically novel. It's just like, I never heard of it before. He has this novel business model where he doesn't, charge them up front at all it's like immediately a subscription it's he calls it a, a payment plan but it's immediately a subscription hmm. so he goes out to these power washers he's like for 180 bucks a month uh you will have a website as quickly as 30 days and they're like 180 bucks a month that sounds great and so he takes a risk on the front end because he's got to build an entire website in a month for 180 dollars but it's it's a two-year contract and at, over the course of time, they pay him out enough so that he feels like he's making good money. And then they can extend, you know, for sort of hosting and maintenance after that, or they can stop paying him and he just gives them like the, I think it's WordPress or something. He just gives them the files and they can host it themselves, which no one ever does. Of course. So drastically different business model. He's definitely not the only person making websites and he's definitely not the only person making websites for sort of home service businesses. He's probably not even the only person making websites for power washers. But I'll bet you he is the only one that charges $180 a month. And like with no, no, I mean, there's a commitment, but there's no down payment. There's no deposit. There's no setup fee. Yep. Easy it's to like buy. Swipe. It's super easy to buy. Yeah. I, uh, I recently saw a study from HubSpot that says that those companies that study their competitors have a 2.5 times higher ROI in their marketing compared to businesses who don't study their competitors. Uh, that, I believe that. But I also would caution people from paying too much attention to their competitors. The, the thing that I, I think it's, it's sort of obvious to say, but I think it's more important to pay attention to your customers. But the overlap there, I think, is paying attention to what your customers think of your competitors, mm -hmm. who your customers even think your competitors are, because they might not even be aware of who the people that you see as your competitors. They might see something that is completely not what you do as an alternative. Yeah. You know, like Wix, like I'll just do it myself on Wix. Like that might be your air quotes competitor, but it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me that that's true. And, and I should add just to jump back for two seconds. Yeah. The guy the, with the $180 sites, he's onboarding more than one new paying customer per day, right? Like those are fish jumping out of the barrel yeah. into this guy's, but he's doing, he's crushing it. And he, and he has, it's not just him. He has a team of people now, but sure. You mentioned this concept of an expensive problem as a way to focus your positioning. Can you talk about what a an expensive problem is? Yes. An expensive problem is it's a situation where someone will write you a big fat check to make their life better. Hmm. So this is, this is especially a big deal when I was doing consulting my previous life, when I was doing sort of big ticket consulting for Fortune 500s, when mobile was a big deal, you would want you wanted someone who had a really high desire. So they've got this painful pain. You wanted them to have really high buying power and you wanted there to be no obvious alternatives to hiring you. So you could, you have this like very powerful upward lift on your fees. So like mm -hmm. they really want, I don't know, they really want their website to be mobile friendly. Uh, they've got a million dollar budget to do it. And you're the one that wrote the book. So here, take my money, right? So you That's want awesome. people, right? Now there's yeah. a difference between an expensive problem and a big problem. Okay. So like global warming is a very big problem, but it's too diffuse. There's not one person who's losing sleep over it or could write you a big fat check to solve it. So it needs to be a business problem. It could be caused by global warming. It, you know, it, that could be a root cause or a contributing factor, but that's that's not that's more of a mission 
that you know if i want to do what i can to you know decrease climate change or slow climate change that's fine for a mission but you've got to find an expensive problem where a business is experiencing this big pain that they have not been able to fix it's urgent that they do they're either you know they're losing you know tens of thousands of dollars a, a day i talked to somebody once who they had a really really bad invoicing their their whole the whole system for their business was just spreadsheets it was a massive excel spreadsheets with a bunch of calculation fields and there were multiple it wasn't even in the cloud it was just multiple copies of this file they were moving around and it was always wrong it was, the people were always overwriting other people's changes putting it on a shared drive <laughs> and so when I'm, when I'm looking for an expensive problem i ask questions like well how big a deal is this why don't you why don't you just do this? Why don't you do, just do that? And I'll suggest like really simple, cheap solutions. And we, ah, we tried that. Nobody stuck with it. You know, we thought about using Google Sheets and everybody was accessing the same one, but nobody would use it. And they just kept going back to the old thing. And, and I'm like, well, how, how big a deal is this really? I mean, could you just hire an extra person to like really focus on being, being the one that owns the spreadsheet and checks it out like a librarian? And he was like, he was like, I don't think so. We've tried that before. And, and I was like, well, how big a deal is it? And he said they were so slow. Their process was so slow that they were getting invoices out so late that their clients were not obligated to pay them because they were so old. And I was like, does that hop happen very much? And he was like, we're probably losing $40,000 a month in, in invoices that just expire. <laughs> and so I, yeah, so I hear that as a budget. So, you know, that's right. at least $400,000. Easy, right. Of, it, never mind all of the Ajda and the, mm. the scrambling and the yeah. chaos, right? So that's at least a $500,000 $500, value in a given year. So if I can create some kind of a software solution for 50 grand or, or even, even 250 grand, mm-hmm they're going to throw money at it's like why not why wouldn't they do it and then the list of reasons becomes very small and and they're not related to money they're like we don't either you're not credible they don't think they'll stick to it they think they'll pay me and i'll do it and then still they won't adopt it there's other reasons why they might say no at that point Mm -hmm. Uh, they might find someone cheaper is another one but generally speaking you know that is an expensive problem that's a fairly expensive problem is in your mind, is there a correlation between an expensive problem and the requirement to work with a specialist? I think they wouldn't have the problem if it didn't require a specialist. Mm-hmm. So if it's someone who's willing to write a check to solve a problem, that's like a personality type almost. But it's like, you know, the, the, what's the, what's the, the, the quote, like the best tool in your toolbox is a checkbook, you know, as a business owner. <laughs> so if they're already the type that would write a check to solve the problem, then they've probably written a lot of checks already to try and solve the problem and it just hasn't worked. So then they, they sort of have educated themselves that we cannot get this ball across the finish line on our own. All these other things we tried didn't work. So we need to call in the big guns or something like that. Yeah. So then they go, they go asking around who is the one, you know, who wrote the book on this, who, you know, you probably, the the person who speaks at conferences about it has been speaking at conferences, the one who has Mm -hmm. delivered these kinds of results to other big companies like mine. Those sorts of things. And as a, an agency owner or a listener who's running a business, maybe a generalist today and wants to begin the process of specializing and focusing their, their positioning around an expensive problem, how do you advise they actually find what the expensive problem is for their audience? You almost have to pick an like a market. Let's just call it a vertical because that's the show we're on. Yeah. But you almost have to pick a vertical and because different verticals they might have the same underlying root cause. Like they might all have soggy positioning. You know, your, your target market might all have soggy positioning. Your target, these different target markets might all be overwhelmed by digital, but they're going to talk about it in different ways. They're going to use different lingo to discuss their version of the symptoms of the root cause. So by picking a particular vertical, you can start to find out how they talk about the symptoms of the problem that you solve and how painful they are. So for someone who, you know, it's common, it's, it's more than just a vertical. So the, the word vertical generally means, you know, like the NAICS code or however you say that mm-hmm. it's like a particular, you know, whatever software consulting or landscaping, right? It's, it's like a job kind of, 
But I think a good target market has even more than that. You could call it your ideal customer profile or whatever. There's a million names for it. Mm-hmm. But there's usually, almost always, when I've got a student who really, really nails positioning and, and by nails it, how do you know they nailed it? Well, they're getting tons of leads that look like that. And there's almost always a, a business size component where where they need to be big enough so they can afford your exorbitant fees. And the problem is expensive. They will write a big fat check to solve this problem. So they need to be big enough to have that buying power, but not so big that they've got one of you as a CMO or a CFO, you know, like, yeah. like they've hired internally, they have an entire team of people like you. So if they're huge, it, it can be, it can be tricky. It's not impossible, but if you pick a few target markets, you can talk to, about this, how to do that better than I can. Mm-hmm. Um, usually I just say, you know, look for places where you're already an insider. Yeah. The, the power washer guy was an insider and other people I know were insiders in their market. They know all of the people they already have a reputation. I was an insider in software development when I went solo and did coaching for those sorts of folks. So I know all the language. Uh, but the other thing is the pr- the symptom and the, the buying power are going to be different depending on the size of the company. So once you focus in on, say, CPAs, you're probably also going to say CPAs who don't have any partners, who do run their own firm, who have a handful of employees, but not 100 and they're doing between 750,000 to 1.5 million and they want to get to 3 million. Yeah. So that's like a perfect customer profile for someone. And if you get that specific, you can start to read their minds because you talk to a few of them, you have conversations with them and it's like, how do they articulate? How do they articulate the symptoms, the painful symptoms that they're experiencing? And you might talk to someone like that and be like, well, you've got a t- your positioning is terrible. Like, you know, it's the same problem that most small businesses have anyway but they're going to talk about it in a different way. And their expensive problem, just to keep going with this example, their expensive problem is not really that they they want more money. I mean, yeah, that would be nice, but the real problem they have is that they're working weekends every week. And what they really want is their time back without losing money. And then once they get there, then we can talk about growth or something like that. But mm-hmm. um, in a different market or a different psychographic Someone who's maybe way more ambitious could be the same CPA, could be the same size firm, but they don't have kids. They don't care about the weekends or they're an empty nester and they are perfectly fine grinding seven days a week. They are going to have a different, they might still have the same problem like soggy positioning, but they want a different thing. So it's the same root cause, but the the thing that they will write a big fat check for is different. They want to double revenue instead of get their weekends back. It it manifests itself differently. Right. Yeah. The desire is different. Hey, it's Corey. Almost every day I talk with agency owners who are frustrated with getting their outbound program off the ground. The truth is too many agencies are too dependent on inbounds and referrals to grow their business. We all know that it's getting harder and harder to generate inbounds and that it's just not a sustainable way to grow your business. I'd like to give you the six secrets for driving consistent ROI from your outbound that I learned as Scorpion's chief marketing officer, where we doubled the business from 20 million to 40 million just by adding outbound to an existing inbound only program. It's a free six day email course that will transform your outbound from broken to consistently driving new sales opportunities. You could sign up and get the first secret right now by going to get outboundroi.com. That's getoutboundroi.com. Now back to the show. Changing subject a little bit in this new world that we live in, previous to when we hit record, we were talking about the power of AI and its ability for to generate content. Mm -hmm. And, you know, many agencies today in any business is really subject to this sort of, what does this actually mean for businesses? But in the context of, of agencies, who have built their positioning and their brand around sort of the execution aspects of digital marketing, let's say, like for instance, blog post writing or website generation. Uh, there's, there's, you know, the list goes on. But the point is, is that they primarily position themselves as a doer. You know, they're, they're functionally very uh, sophisticated and, and that's, you know, that's their positioning is they're a function, you know, they're an expert in execution. As AI sort of begins to proliferate in this in this world that we live in how 
do they begin to transition their positioning from a doer to an advisor where they can be paid instead of for the execution, but more for their expertise and their, and their strategy? Mm, a lot going on there. So the first thing I would say is there's, as globalization proliferated over the past 20 years, I feel like now, and remote work has become a relatively normal thing. Like this commoditization of execution has been going on anyway. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is just probably taken a quantum leap. So my the first thing I would say is don't resist it, embrace it. But that means that your business model might need to change. Because if your cost structure, if everyone's cost structure collapses, so now you can do create the same amount of output as you used to in half the time in a fifth of the time and you are charging hourly let's say probably most of your audience isn't but let's just say hourly or some other time-based version of that day rates or something charging on inputs then you're probably going to have to adjust your business model you know to something that's either either for deliverables you know per deliverable but now you can create the deliverables like like twice as fast so great maybe you could even lower your costs and still make more money I don't know, but it's, it's, if you think of AI as like a bunch of interns, what would you do if like there was suddenly a flood of a billion free interns in the market, you know, that, that were working for your competitors? So I would say, I would say embrace it, figure out how to use it to create leverage, which could include changing your product and service mix. Hmm. It could include a, a, a business model tweak. Probably not. I think for your, I think for folks listening, it probably won't be a full business model tweak, but mm. it might be changing your mix of products and services. You know, if you don't do it, your competitors are going to, someone's going to figure it out. You know, I, I saw a tweet that I saw two tweets on this that really resonated with me. One was a software developer who was, who's very experienced, very well known, like, like million followers type of software developer. And he was like, I've been resisting looking at Chad GPT. I finally got over my reluctance and and I, now I know why I was reluctant. 90% of my skills just went to zero value, but the remaining 10% thousand X'd. <laughs> so, and the other tweet was, I think ChatGPT and generative AI will allow for the first billion dollar solo business, which I, I was like that, I could see that. So it's going to affect everything for sure to larger or smaller degree in the digital space. Anything that's digital is going to be affected. So embrace it, get used to it, find ways to create leverage with it. But okay, then to the the final question, the final piece of your question was about yeah. being become becoming known as more of a doer, uh, less of a doer and more of a thinker, or I know yeah. how to do. So you your agency, you or your agency has sort of institutional knowledge. You are you have a reputation for delivering a certain kind of results, and you can sell those results. You don't have to do, you know, like if it made sense to hire a bunch of employees and mark up their time and make a living based on that arbitrage, that might be over, but that's okay. You can just price differently. So it's the results that the clients want. It's not the blog posts. Mm -hmm. They don't want the blog posts. They want better SEO. And why do they want better SEO? They want more money. They want like lower customer acquisition cost whatever it is. So use these new tools to deliver the outcomes that your buyers want and stop talking about the inputs. So stop talking about, oh, we'll do this many blog posts. We'll do I mean, you could still do that and then just write them very cheaply with, with ChatGPT or something. But I feel like if you do want to make that transition to sort of a higher level business partner, you need to start thinking about and charging for the results. And then that will, that will cause you to think differently about how you engage with your clients. Most likely mm -hmm. you'll think, okay, we're not going to be just a, a, a room full of hands that crank out social media posts and graphics and blog posts and content marketing and all that. Mm -hmm. we, we still might do that, but that's not what we're going to price. What we're going to price is the results and get really good at actually delivering results. And if you can do that and make that claim credibly and testimonials to the effect that you can do it that's a pretty big moat. You know, that's going to be hard for other people to compete with. What are productized services? A productized service is a fixed scope service sold at a published price. That generally speaking, sometimes they're really, you know, they're like 
50,000 or a hundred thousand dollars for a product size service. I might not post the price then you might need to have a sales call for that. Yeah. But usually there, you know, it's some kind of service that you could deliver, you know, from five to 15 hours across the course of two to four weeks, you know, spread out. And, and it's more or less, you run through this process. That's of course, it's always a little bit different with each client, but you're not customizing it for the client. You just do the thing and you package it like a product, hence the name productized service. It's delivered like a service, but it's sold like a product. So, and this is actually really good if you're having a hard time positioning your whole firm, you can create a productized service and just position that. What is the value proposition of just this one, you know, digital road mapping service or something, digital strategy engagement? What is the, or even a workshop would be a productized service. It's like it's fixed scope at the end. You can promise these kinds of benefits. Your team will understand X, Y, and Z, and that will, you know, probably lead to benefits down the road. If you believe that's true, then this is a good deal. So yeah, it's just, it's like a bottle of pills, you know, Mm. got a migraine, quick relief, that sort of a thing. And so in the agency space, have you seen any companies do, do this well with regard to sort of packaging up their, their, I guess their service-based product? Sure. I mean, the power washing guy is an example. I mean, he also threw in this sort of subscription model, which is, I mean, a whole, probably a whole other conversation. Very interesting to add in to actually have a good subscription model. I feel like story brand is an example, like the the story brand team Mm. complete. I mean, they, I don't know if, I don't think anyone there started out as an agency, but they could have. You know, Don Miller might have been doing consulting one-on-one. He probably did at some point. And, you know, but that's not what they're doing now. They, yeah. They're packaging it up and teaching people how to do it instead of being the ones that do it. So you can you could package up your expertise, your know-how in a lot of different ways. This is, this is a big decision for somebody who's used to, you know, selling. Customized. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But it's it's a move. Like you could move from this high-touch service end of the spectrum and sort of down, you know, we are a small number of clients, small number of big clients into productized space where you have 10 times more clients, but you're just doing this repeatable process for them into even smaller where you've got a hundred or a thousand times more. You wouldn't even have clients at this point to be called customers and they're buying info products and training and that sort of thing. So, you know, that's a, that's a big business decision strategically wh- where you want to go with your business. You certainly could just stay at the high end, deliver promising and delivering outstanding business results to a small number of clients every year. And as the clients get bigger, if you're using value pricing to price your projects, you can be dramatically increasing your fees over and over and over the bigger your clients get and the more expensive the problems get. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get into value pricing here in a minute, but for the agencies that are primarily doing customized services. Every client's new. There's a whole discovery and covering and a whole sort of roadmap that's specific to the customer. And then the mm-hmm. execution, everything is bespoke, let's say yeah. on the one end of the spectrum, right? which has its benefits and its drawbacks. What are the benefits for introducing a productized service? Why would that potentially be a good idea for them to think about? So when you have one of those completely everything's new every time we have, maybe you have a kind of a process you go through, but it's just constantly winging it. And, and that, you know, and you, maybe you enjoy that sugar high of learning some, somebody's new business every time. And like, oh, last month it was a plastics manufacturer. This month it's a plastic surgeon, you know, and and it's fun because I get to learn all the new things and it feels really creative and, and that's great, but you're not building anything. You're just getting paid to do the thing and there's nothing, there's no business there. Yeah. You're selling your time effectively. Yeah, effectively. Right. So if you're not pricing yourself like w- through the roof, like massively profitable, you're really not building anything. You can be massively profitable doing that. People do yeah. it, but most people are probably not value pricing. So they're probably not massively profitable on doing that stuff. So the question becomes like, do I ever want to sell this business? Or even if you don't want to sell the business and you think you never will, wouldn't I want to have the kind of business that someone would want to buy? It's a sign that that if someone wanted to buy your business, it's a sign that you have a good business. Yes. Nobody wants to buy a bespoke services company. It's just not. Right. No, it's because just what not, are you buying? Happen. Especially you if, buying? The, if yeah, the founder leaves, then 
then you're, you're basically, yeah, what are you buying? <laughs> nothing, right. You're right. not buying anything. Yeah. yeah. So, but if you have, if you do want to become like an expert, you okay. can't, it's like impossible to become an expert that way. You can be, you can do your best practices all day long in the custom world. Uh, and sometimes it'll work and sometimes it won't. You just, it's tough. To, if you want repeatable success, you want systems, you want cost reduction, you want to feel like you want it to feel more like an engine and less like a, a constant brainstorming session. Yeah. Then, then productized services is a great thing to step into to start to experiment with. A lot. Some people think like, oh, that I'll just I'll get bored doing the same thing over and over. And it's like, well, you know, get a hobby. <laughs> this is your business. <laughs> Wouldn't you want to have predictable income? Like, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great to know what your costs are going to be every month? Wouldn't it be great to know that you, you know, like the power washing guy onboarding more than one new customer a day for years? Wouldn't that be nice? He's building the same website over and over and over. Mm. Is he bored? I don't think so. <laughs> he doesn't seem bored. Mm. I mean, he's doing six figures a month, you know, mm. with a small team. So, yeah. So it's like... And I imagine if you do the same thing over and over, uh, you, you, you probably gets pretty good operationally efficient from an efficiency perspective right. to your point, but the actual end product probably also is better. Yes. If you're creating a variety of different disconnected type of websites for different people. Yeah. I feel, I feel like in the creative space, there's this tension between, between being a designer and being an artist and everybody wants to be an artist, but they're not artists, they're designers. So it's like, if you want to be an artist... That's cool. I was a musician. I have a degree in music. I, I get that world. There's create, but there's creativity in building a business, but it's not, I don't buy the artist thing. I don't buy the artist thing. If you want to make art, make art. If you're a designer, you're solving problems. Designer is super creative, has to be super creative and has to, but, but the point is you're getting paid to solve problems. So that creativity is in service of creating business outcomes. And the more repeatable your process is and the more predictable it is, the better you're going to be at solving those problems and delivering beneficial results. It, it does go back to like the focusing in on a particular kind of buyer though also because different buyer, you know, a productized service is not going to be a perfect fit price-wise and everything else for a mom and pop and for Domino's. So part of having the productized service work is that you're incredibly specific about who is the appropriate buyer for it and an inappropriate buyer, you wouldn't let them buy it. Be like, this yeah. isn't a good fit for you. We should do a custom project. It seems like the the process is get really clear on who you're focusing on and what you're doing for them. Do it for them for a while. Begin to recognize patterns in the work that you're doing. Try, you know, look at it from a productization perspective. Like what could we package up, put a price on it and merchandise that individually from our custom services to be, as a way to bring more people in. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know why you wouldn't want to experiment with that. At least it doesn't mean changing yeah. the whole business. You could try a productized service, see how it goes. Mm -hmm. There's a great book on this called built to sell by John Warlow, mm -hmm. where he is sort of like a, it's a sort of fictionalized account, you know, written like a parable almost of a design agency that specializes and creates a repeatable productized service. And like, all of a sudden there's something you could sell. And like I said before, even if you don't want to sell, being able to sell means you've created something, you've built something. Yeah. I like the saying, build a, build a business that everyone wants to buy, but that you don't want to sell. Right. Right. <laughs> as soon as it, as soon as it becomes super attractive, it's like the last yeah. time you want to sell it. You're like, well, <laughs> it's running like a well-oiled machine. Right. You know? Why, why would I give this away? This is, this is a great yeah, asset that I'm barely built. working. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So it's, it's, it's fair to say then that taking a vertical approach to your business will help put you in a good position to uncover potentially very powerful productized service that could help you to eventually sell if you want to. Yeah. I think that's the easiest way. There are other ways, but they're hard and risky, harder mm -hmm. and riskier. I think, I, I think picking, you know, my, my business strategy is like help people you like get what they want. And if you can do that, over and over, you're going to be fine. Yeah. Right. So it, the key piece there is people you like, like who are the people that you want to hang around with? Cause most service businesses, you're going to be exposed to your clients as much as your family. So yeah. when, you know, if th there's a difference between like hanging around with accountants and hanging around with artists, like who do you want to hang around with? They both have demands. They both have needs. They have different buying power. So you, you'd 
create your productized service or maybe even products in a way that was affordable and a good value for whoever your target is. But yeah, picking who you want to help is hard. Like people don't want to do it. They resist it. If only there was a book that described the process. <laughs> but mm. yeah, hmm. but yeah, but it's, it's not easy, but in terms of building your overall yeah. business, it's an exercise that's difficult, but in terms of your overall business, that is putting yourself on easy mode. It's like, yeah. it's, you're just stacking the cards in your favor. If you just pick who you want to sell to, even for just a year, you know, it doesn't have to be forever. You can yeah. do a new vertical after. I've, uh, I've interviewed a lot of very successful agency owners who've taken a verticalized approach and one sort of thread that sort of ties them all together. And, and this is true from my experience at Scorpion and other places I've worked is that to your point that there, there's sort of a requirement that the founder or the business owner, the, the person who is basically running the show really has to have some kind of intrinsic care for or interest like in the in that target audience so an example may be hvac businesses and the 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 owner of the agency cristiano he really likes working with blue collar folks right uh, there's another another gentleman who has a an agency that focuses in on sort of medical multi-location medical practices hmm. alex membrio and he really cares about being a part of the solution when it comes to healthcare. And he believes that that's a, that's, you know, part of the work that he's doing is he's helping that mission. And so there's, there's definitely, when you do focus down, you do, you definitely spend a lot of time with them and there needs to be sort of that inherent interest or respect or care for that, that, that business vertical. And I think by doing that, it helps you to really you know, amplify the results that you're able to create. I mean, think about it. It, we're, everybody listening is in a service business. If mm. you don't want to serve, then open a laundromat. Like you, it's fine. Do something else. Like you yeah. don't have to be a, a service provider. But if you're going to be in that kind of business, what you just described, actually caring, it's a competitive advantage. You know, if you're if if you're in the mindset of like, oh, I just want to be a sort of pure entrepreneur, that's cool too. If you just want to be a pure entrepreneur and just invest in more or less random businesses that you think are are going to work, that's fine. That's a path. But that's not what anyone listening to this is doing. I don't think. I mean, did anybody listening did, isn't thinking of themselves as the primary investor in this firm that they're running. I doubt it. I doubt they are. Yeah. Yeah. So if that's the case, then, well, wouldn't it be nice if you actually cared about your, your client's transformations and like yeah. improving their well-being? You know, and, and then acted like it. I think everyone will give lip service to that, but then actually acted like it yeah. in the product and service mix that you create for them. I think that, that there's a correlation there between the folks who give lip service to it. They burn out. They they decide something else, you know, in six months because they're yeah, not they seeing cynical. immediate reaction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then those folks who actually make it across that that chasm, if you will, are the ones that are doing it for the greater purpose. You reminded me back when that was... After college, I moved back home and I, I worked at a restaurant as a host and I really didn't want to be there. And I was really not a good host. Like <laughs> I got right. fired because I yeah. just didn't want to be there. Right. I just didn't right. want to like, do my duh. job. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, people might have already gone through this phase. People might be some folks listening might be past this phase. But there's a phase when you first start where the profitability is like a lagging indicator that you're doing something right. So something has to carry you through. Or if you did a pivot, if you're listening to this and you're like, they're right, I'm going to pivot. I'm going to start doing productized services or something. Any decision that you make in a business is a bet that it's going to work out eventually. And then you need to be excited. There needs to be some motivation that will get you through that phase before the profit profitability kicks in. Yeah. Yeah. You got to So, caring is one of the things that can get you through the phase the sense of fulfillment yeah. that that this is going to help people's lives get better then if you if these are the kind of people whose lives you want to improve then that can help carry you through that that lag time sure i mean it, it takes a lot of energy to build momentum and it's through those periods where care can really help to your point you know, make that transition successful. Mm -hmm. One of the, the the things you talk a lot about in Ditcherville and in all of your teachings and your writings is this concept of value-based pricing. Mm -hmm. And I want to kind of dive in a little bit there because I think some of the listening audience are going to be agencies who maybe are doing project work, creative, kind of larger, more 
sophisticated website design or other type of creative work that they're potentially charging on a time and materials basis or maybe a blended hourly rate. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on why is it a better strategy to sort of ditch hourly or, or to mm-hmm. move away from purely hourly based pricing and moving into value-based pricing? Yeah, there's kind of two ways to answer that. The first sure. one is it's a way to scale without adding headcount. So if you think that the only way that you can scale your business is to add headcount higher, 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 that is a way to scale, but it's not the only way, but it's the only way that most people think of. And if you are a great leader and you really want to be a great leader, you want to be a great boss, you care about the your employees' well-being and you want them to grow, then you're probably going to be good at it. That's probably a good move for you. But if you're someone who is really doesn't want to be a manager, they're just doing it because that's how you grow and that's the only way they know of, then you're probably not going to be a good boss. And then you have all the attendant problems with that, like employee churn, low morale, revolving door policy, spending a ton of money onboarding new people, always having open positions, restaffing projects constantly, you get all those nightmares. So on one level, value pricing is a way to scale a service business without hiring. So that's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. So the first question I guess I would ask myself is, did I hire employees merely to scale the business up? Or do I actually care about improving my employees' lives too? Like maybe you're, you know, I don't know, you're hiring... uh, a group of I've, I've talked to a few people who sort of hire, you know, ex-cons and people who are hard scrabble yeah. background and they really, you know, and, and the goal is to make their lives better along with the owner's life. And is that's that's a whole mission thing. That's great. I love that. But if you're just hiring employees to scale up and make more money, there are other ways to do that. Value pricing is a great way to do it. If you already are attracting clients that are wanting you to do these big custom projects. Why wouldn't you just charge more per hour instead of a value-based? Eventually you'll just, because the problem with hourly is that it gives people an apples to apples comparison with your competitors. So if everybody's charging hourly, then they'll be like, well, you know, why are you $300 an hour instead of 150 like everyone else? And that's, a t- it's tough to, to explain, you know? You could say, well, we're twice as fast, but then like, why are you even like, if you are actually twice as fast, why not just give them a price? And then all of that, the speed becomes an asset for you. So that you have volume. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, yeah, (laughs) double my prices. I'd lose half my customers. Yeah. So you can scale up the hourly model with headcount, but I, Mm -hmm. I just don't like when people are hiring employees just to scale. So the way value pricing works, this is sort of the second way to answer the question, is that for a custom project that is going to be bespoke to this prospect who came through the door and they are like, we need this crazy thing. We don't know how to do it. We barely even understand. Like, we don't know what we don't know. You have a sales conversation with them. And if you're attracting the kind of clients who have expensive problems, you can go through a series of questions to uncover their real motivation for even talking to you or someone like you in the first place. Like something changed, something changed. Either a, somebody came into their market, they're afraid of losing market share to Amazon or a competitor, uh, like a some other competitor is taking their, their business, eating their lunch, or there's AI is now working and they don't know how to capitalize on it. They, something changed and they want an expert who looks like you to help them go with this project that they have. So when you meet with them initially, I just have people try and talk them out of doing the project and saying like, all right, why not not do this? This sounds like a really big deal. It's going to be disruptive to your whole organization. It's going to cost you a fortune. Why not not do it? Isn't there some other thing you could do instead? And then you have them explain to you why, no, this is the thing we need to do. And you're like, oh, okay. It seems like a good reason. Then you find like they're, out they're, they're, they're pitching you effectively. Yes. Like, hey, you know, we need, we need to do this and we think you're the person to do it. Yeah. And so you come in and you kind of act like you would if, if you're a board member and they're trying to convince mm-hmm. you to, to allow them to spend all this money on this big thing. So you just kind of act like they're their parent or their board member or something. Even if you're talking to the CEO and they're like, we need you to do this thing. It's like, well, why convince me? And, and then it's like, is now, does it have to have to be now or could we put it off? You know, you want it, the more urgent it is, the more important it is that they do this 
then the better it is from a value pricing perspective. And then finally, why would you hire someone expensive like me to do it mm. when you could get interns or use AI or get your cousin Vinny or outsource this to emerging economies? Why not just do it cheaper? And if you can get credible answers to all those questions, you can put together a proposal based on what it's worth to this particular client. And let's say it's worth like my invoicing example earlier, that was definitely worth a half a million dollars, like no question. Exactly, exactly. So, right, you know, it couldn't be clear. It's not always that clear, but mm. it, it was, it's very clear often. And, you know, you come up with some prices based on the value, fraction, a fraction of the value. And you're like, all right, what could we do to move this particular needle for this client in this circumstance for, you know, let's say it's $500,000 is the value, guesstimate value. You say, what could we do for these people for $50,000 that would move the needle? What could we do for $120,000 that would move the needle? What could we do for $250,000 that would move the needle? And you kind of give yourself a budget and then think about the scope last after you have prices. So you're like, all right, for 50 grand, we could do a kickoff meeting. We could do this, we could do that. I could give them a couple of designers, you know, for a two week period. And then at the end, they'll have, I don't know, a roadmap or some kind of whatever, you know, some kind of thing that will, your contribution will contribute, I mean, your uh, activities will contribute to their desired outcome in a way that they believe, because that's what they explained to you in the conversation. Like, why do you need SEO? Why not not do this? Right. And they'll say, well, because this, that, and the other, and it will lead to, you know, we know, we know our funnel is great, but we're just not getting enough traffic to the site. If we could just get qualified traffic to the site, we would double our income. Oh, good. Okay. Write that down. And there are probably at least three different ways that you could engage with the client to improve their SEO. And at those different budgets, you just pick, you just pick a scope for the budget that you'd be fist pumpingly happy to do. So when it inevitably is more work than you thought, because that's always what happens, <laughs> you still don't care because you have like a hundred percent margin or like you're making double what you would have done it for. So even if it takes you like 75% more work, you don't feel like you're losing money. I imagine that in in many contexts, the the agency owner that's listening is is used to having a competitive situation when they're trying to win a deal. Generally speaking, mm -hmm. in other words, they're the the buyer is potentially talking to them as well as two or three of their other competitors, and they're sort of trying to com compare and contrast the, the the different services and the offerings. What would have to be true for the buyer to choose the the partner, the vendor who has a value-based pricing versus let's say time and materials. The whole premise indicates that your positioning isn't great yet. It's like, you're not the one and only, mm -hmm. so you're not specialized enough, or at least you're not perceived as specialized enough because I mean, the biggest deals I ever, no one was considering anyone else. Like they might be aware that there are other people out there, but they're not even considering them. Like you are the one and only, if you want the best, this is who, you know, this is the person that's the best this is how much it costs. And if that's not cool, that's fine. Go with someone else. So, okay. But let's just say that is your situation. Your positioning is not crushing it yet. And you're not the one and only, maybe you're one of three and the other ones are, you need to differentiate yourself. So one thing that works in the software space, at least, is that you can point to the, the pricing model as a benefit. So you could say, in this, I've said this in the past in, in software context where most people charge by the hour. And I would say, well, all right. You know, they say, they come to me and say, you know, you're, we really want to work with you, but your price is literally double the next quote. And I'd say, well, is it a quote or is it an estimate? And they'd say, well, it's an estimate. I'd say, well, mine's, mine is a fixed price. Like you, with me, you won't pay a penny more than that price mm -hmm. on a piece of paper. That's interesting. If you go back to them and they're willing to stand behind their prices, then you should go with that next one. But if they won't stand behind their prices, you need to ask yourself, do they really know what they're doing? Like if they're not even comfortable with the price. So you can point, you, essentially what you're doing is you're, you're making it conscious the risk that the client is taking if they go with someone who just is a, a blank check, basically. You know, if you want to give these guys a blank check, go for it. But with me, you know how much it's going to be. Would you rather have the certainty? Or would you rather not? Uh, so what is a potentially downside to taking a value-based approach to pricing projects? Pricing it too low and getting killed. Um, mm. So if you're really bad at establishing value, most people are pretty bad at it. It takes practice. It takes a lot of practice. So if you're not getting a lot of leads, then 
it's tough to get enough practice to get better at it. So again, it comes to a positioning thing, a differentiation thing, marketing in general. It's like you want to be getting enough leads so you can get practice doing this kind of a sales interview. When you do go to do it, make the scope as small as possible. Make the the project as small as possible, which is the opposite of what, even when you're good at it, I try and make the project as small as possible because that's risk. The bigger it is, the more risky it is. I fall into that trap, by the way. (laughs) I try to make it too big. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of people want. Yeah. That's the, that's the normal way. It's like Mm -hmm. you go in, you pitch all of this stuff. You're going to be on the clock or you're going to be on this monthly retainer thing and you want it to last for as long as possible because you don't want to have to have another one of these conversations with a new client in six months or in two months. So you want to milk the client as long as possible. That's what it is. So, all right, great. And not that you're not helping them, but you know what I mean? It's like you're trying to avoid sales conversations. You don't want to give a solid price because you know, well, again, I'm speaking for software developers. I don't know about your people, but in the Mm -hmm. software space, the financial incentives are set up such that you will underestimate to get the gig. And then when it goes over budget or overestimate, you go, well, I told you it was an estimate, but they had to make a purchasing decision based on that number. So they consider yeah. it a, a price, even if in flashing red letters, you have it say, this is only an estimate. My estimates usually go over by double. You know, they, nobody reads it like that. They can't that's make horrible. that decision. Yeah. yeah. It, that's a, that's a stat. As a matter of fact, something like, <laughs> something like 50% of projects go a hundred percent over budget or 80%. It's crazy. Uh, yeah. Which, which, which doesn't help the dynamic of the relationship between the, the the sort of the agency and the and the client because the client now has to deal with these additional costs and it's a the, nightmare. yeah the, the agency has to defend them and yeah yeah finger pointing micromanaging fighting <laughs> about hours the your buyer your buyer getting i've had buyers get fired over this mm. like their boss is like you are this is projects out of control you're out of here there is so much more to unpack here, but we're unfortunately we're running low on time, so uh-huh. we'll have to continue the conversation another time. But I have a couple, uh, just a, a couple of quick questions. Tell us a little bit about the work you do, Jonathan. Tell us about Ditcherville and and mm. how people can learn more from you and get in touch with you. Sure, I appreciate that. I mean, the best place to go is like JonathanStark.com. There's a bunch of links right in the homepage. But Ditcherville is really interesting to me. It's a community of you know five or six hundred people who are mostly soloists, but some small boutique firm owner types. And, you know, every other week we do this sort of like live Q&A session, you know, uh, over video. And and then in between calls, people share their wins and share their questions. And, hey, could you give me a teardown on this web page? And, you know, and I'm in there and I, I do that stuff. But it's it's really a place for these sort of independent entrepreneurs to hang out, you know, and get advice from each other and see like what worked for you, what worked for you. Cause yeah, I've got my experience, but that's just my experience. And I've, I've coached people, but that's still only, I don't know, 50, I probably have only had 50 one-on-one coaching clients, maybe, maybe more, but about 50, it's not a hundred. So I can't, I don't know everything. Right. But, but the group the sort of conventional wisdom of a group of like-minded people who are trying to increase their profitability, trying to, without working more, they want to make more without working more. So it's a very specific yeah. kind of mentality and, and usually without hiring. So, yeah, so that's, it's, I don't, honestly, I don't know how to describe it very well. <laughs> I'm realizing. No, no, I'll, I'll share from my experience. I'm a member of the community and I think the things that I value from it, uh, number one, it's just thinking from a value-based perspective, it, requires, at least I'll speak for myself, requires me to rewire how I think in some respects. And and so being a part of a community who are also committed to building their business around a value-based pricing, as well as positioning, as well as productized services, everything we discussed today, it's it's a community of people who realize that is a, I'll speak with my bias, it's a better way to, to build a business. And so that's sort of the common bond. And there's a really high level of quality of folks in there who are truly doing the work, which I appreciate. And so I, I get a lot out of it. Yeah, that does make sense because it's a huge mindset shift. So if you can get mm-hmm. support from people who are working air quotes in public, then it does seem really beneficial. Last question, Jonathan, what's your motivation? I want to rid the world of hourly billing. I hate Love it. it. <laughs> I hate it. That's going to be on my headstone. That would be a win. It's so bad. It's so bad for clients. Mm-hmm. It's so bad for, it's just bad for buyers and sellers. It's just lazy, but it's like, water to fish like you just 
that's just how you do it, right? You just bill by the hour. I think I think the listeners who run their business that way know know it intrinsically. When they hear you say that, they're like, "Yeah, you're right." But you know, but what? So what do I do? And I think, what do I do instead? Yeah, right. And so I think the the value based discussion I think is definitely worth exploring. So if you aren't already familiar with Jonathan or are on his email list, I highly recommend it. I'm on it. I get a ton of value from that. And and just to confirm, your website is jonathanstark.com. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Jonathan. I appreciate you coming on the show. Anytime. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 